Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Pat Rulo is known nationally as a speaker and coach in the insurance industry, and she served on the advisory boards of the New York Life Insurance Company and Transamerica Life Insurance Company. She's also the author of several business articles and a few books. But today, Pat is here to talk with us about what she learned through her years of research and interviews, in addition to real-life mishaps, information she pulled together for her book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, a patient advocate hospital survival guide. Let's just say that when it comes to patient safety, Pat Rulo is a real maverick. She speaks nationally on the subject, educating groups, clubs, organizations, and healthcare and hospital providers, in addition to being the host and producer of the Speak Up and Stay Alive national radio show, also known as the Voice of Patient Safety. In her radio series, Pat stresses the need for patients to have an advocate at all times. She's here to talk with us today about what family members and friends can do as caregivers to help facilitate a safe journey for their loved ones. Pat Rulo, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jana. What a pleasure to be here with you. I appreciate it. Let's start with how your own caregiving journey began. Uh, You you wrote on your website about uh, an occurrence in 2008 while you were overseeing your insurance company. Can you take us through what happened? Sure, and I will be brief about it because it seemed like it took forever when it happened. And and just like you, I became an accidental caregiver. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I so appreciate the title of your book. It resonated resonated with me, and and I guess you'll find out why shortly. Um, Yeah, I was minding my own business in 2008, as you mentioned, with with the insurance firm, and I had my own employee benefits company. My mom, who was 78 years old at the time, was healthy, active, happy, living on her own because my dad had died of colon cancer years past and I got a phone call that she had fallen at work she tripped over a building code violation that never got uh, attended to and I was in Arizona at the time so my husband and I flew home and and uh, the, the shoulder was torn so badly that it had to be replaced rather than repaired and it was also mm. the arm that she had had a mastectomy the side that she had had a mastectomy in years prior. So it was a lymphedemic arm. It was not the arm to compromise. But um, yeah. anyway, we went and visited with the shoulder surgeon and he said, we have to do a total reverse shoulder replacement where they take the whole shoulder out, replace it where they reverse the ball and socket, supposedly to give her a better range of motion. And uh, the surgery was scheduled for a Monday afternoon. We took her there one o'clock, she was all hooked up, ready to go, and I was in the pre-op with her. And the clock ticked by, one thirty, two o'clock, two thirty, three o'clock, three fifteen, and the nurse comes in and says, the shoulder surgeon doesn't feel well, go home. Oh my God. Uh, yes, yes. So I had to get her all back and dressed and un- unraveled from all the tubes and wires and 
put her in the wheelchair, and as we were heading out the door, the elevator opens, and out jumps the shoulder surgeon with another doctor laughing, holding a cup of coffee, having a great time. And oh, my obviously God. Didn't, yeah, he didn't look sick to me, but <laughs> I'm no doctor. So I, <laughs> I did ask him, when are we going to reschedule the surgery? And he said, I don't know, shoved a card in my hand, and he said, call my office. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, which we did all day Tuesday. No one got back to us all day Wednesday. No one got back to us. In the meantime, my mother is really getting uptight and tense and nervous. The oh. arm is getting bigger and black and blue. Finally, Wednesday evening, about 7 o'clock, the phone rang, and it was his assistant that said, can you be here tomorrow at um, 5 in the morning? Okay. So my mom was complaining of not feeling well. She didn't look well, and I brought her dinner and all. The next morning, she said she didn't feel well. But we went to the hospital anyway. She complained of not feeling well to the anesthesiologist and the assistant. They took her blood pressure. It was 80 over 50, which oh, is low. Wow. And I saw yeah. the assistant anesthesiologist look kind of concerned to the head anesthesiologist, and she gave him these eyes that said, no, shut up. And they went forward with the surgery. Long story short, they let her out. They, they, she was supposed to be out of surgery at 10.15. I was supposed to see her at 11. I didn't get back in until 2.30 because they said she was in pain management. When I finally got in to see her, she was still complaining of not feeling well. One of the nurses said, where does it hurt? She pointed to her chest. Somebody gave her a shot of her sed, which is a sedative, and, and the last thing I heard her say was, I don't, and the room went silent. They kicked me out of the room. About four hours later, about 5 o'clock, a nurse ran out to the waiting room and said, your mom's having a heart attack. We have to get her up to the cath lab right away. Oh, my gosh. Led us to four months in the hospital on every piece of life support possible, any tube, wire, machine, whatever. We were hooked to it, and we stayed like that for four months. And so it was that journey. Um, actually, I'm going to go back for one second, mm -hmm. because the next morning after the shoulder surgery, a doctor who I didn't know found me in the waiting room, pulled me into a conference room, and he said, and he shoved an envelope in my hand. He said, uh, this stinks, and you need to do something about it. Huh. And inside the envelope were four EKG rhythm strips, those little squiggly lines. Mm -hmm. They were taking EKGs the morning prior and all that afternoon, and across the top in plain English it said, heart attack in progress. Gosh. And yet for nine hours, no one did anything about oh, it. Gosh. So it was at that moment I knew I couldn't leave her. I, I shut down my business, and you know, I, I basically spent four months in the hospital with her and then brought her back to, to live with me and intended to her. So it was through all of that horrible stuff that happened mm -hmm. that I, I was going crazy myself, and I thought, I've got to write a book to get this out of me. I didn't mean it to do any other purpose other than to get the thoughts on paper mm -hmm. to really help me cope with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it ended out into speaking events, it turned into radio, and into what I'm doing today. So it was, a, it was a journey that took me to what I'm doing now, totally unplanned. But I guess a lot of times those are the best, those are the best juicy pieces in life that you have to follow. Mm -hmm. And when, you, uh, when she was in the hospital, was she, where was she? Because you said you, let, you were in Arizona and you left Arizona, but I'm not sure you said where she was living at that point. She was back here in Ohio. In Ohio, okay. Yeah, I had two homes at the time, one in Ohio and one in Arizona, so I was bopping between the two the two states. Okay. And so, yeah, so we're, we're back in Ohio now. Okay, and when she had the surgery eventually uh, in Ohio, 
did you then decide to leave Arizona or did you just temporarily uproot yourself for the four months? Yeah, I, yeah. I temporarily uprooted myself and it was for the four, actually five months because then what was thrown on my plate was my brother kind of disowned my my little niece at the same time and so she moved in with us while my mom was in the hospital and she lived a hundred miles, 50 miles away so uh, we were driving her 50 miles to high school for the rest of that year and then 50 miles back. So uh, we were driving four times a day back and forth and then going to the hospital. So then she got accepted to Arizona State in the fall. Mm-hmm. So once my mom finally got out of the hospital, extremely fragile, mm-hmm. I had to bring my niece to Arizona State to get her set up there. So we brought my mom with us there and bought her a small house right on the property next to mine. So mm-hmm. it was a really, really crazy time. Wow. And so did you have kids of your own? Do you have kids? Thankfully, they were older. Yeah, were one older. lives in one lives in Colorado and the other was here in Cleveland. She helped me out a bit as well. So uh-huh. Blessing not to have little ones. Right. That's the classic sandwich generation dilemma, mm-hmm. however. And in addition to your own kids, you had your, your niece, <laughs> yes, I had a 17-year-old who just, you know, was kind of disowned by her dad. Oh, and so she was going through her own trauma, and I had to try mm-hmm. to work with her on that. So it was it was a very, very interesting time. Mm-hmm. And would you say that was an intense five-month period that then ebbed a little <laughs> bit? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. And, so, oh. Jana, I think I was actually going having some post-traumatic stress disorder right yeah. after that myself. and. That's where the writing the book was extremely cathartic for me, where I decided I've got to get this out of me or I'm going to need some kind of help. Mm-hmm. Well, what else did you do for yourself during that time? Besides well, writing. four months, basically, <laughs> I did nothing for myself. Uh-huh. Um, luckily, I have a wonderful, wonderful husband who was my advocate. Mm-hmm. You know, he was tending to everything else. I never had to worry about gassing the car or, mm-hmm. or, you know, or feeding my niece or the groceries or the bills or everything. He took care of that, which then allowed me to take care of my mom. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I, thankfully, I had that support. The first, I come from a family of lawyers, so one of the first things that went through my mind was, gee, I wonder if you had a malpractice suit in there anywhere. Um, your mom was first of all scheduled for a surgery, and then was and went and and that surgery is hard enough for someone who's young or middle aged, but at age seventy eight, the idea of someone getting themselves comfortable with the idea of having the surgery, going in, waiting, being told that the doctor isn't available. I mean, that process must have been. I wondered, did that bring on the heart attack? That's a really good point that you make, and I did have a specialist, uh, a special expert, actually. Um, It was actually the the physician who worked on the John Ritter case. Um, I think he had some heart problems in California, Mm -hmm. and he was given all of the file after the fact, and he did pronounce um, that my mom would not have had a heart attack had she just been going about her normal day and her normal business. Mm-hmm. had that whole scenario not had taken place. So that's mm-hmm. really interesting that you picked up on that as well. Well, the last thing on your mind at that point, I'm sure, was a lawsuit, but that's right where my mind went because obviously... It, it was the, the last thing on my yeah. mind, um, <laughs> but as those four months went on, what, what really disturbed me the most was that 
nobody, and even to this day, nobody admitted that something had happened. They all tried to hide from it. But I was in a very interesting position, and I had a great perspective, is that I knew the very next day, because this doctor who gave me that information told me, this stinks, you need to do something about it. That allowed me to watch people, watch eye movement, watch body language, and just observe how they were desperately trying not to let me find out what went on. And here I was knowing what went on. So I was able to have very pointed conversations with people and gather information, and they had no idea that I knew the truth. That added another layer of weirdness to the whole, to the whole four months, in that nobody ever, nobody ever said, hey, I'm sorry. They didn't have to admit fault, but no one ever said, hey, I'm sorry. But the doctor who gave you that envelope was sort of a, a, a whistleblower of sorts, who probably was, that probably wasn't the first time something like that had happened, which is why he gave you those strips, I think. But you know, that's a whole other, I guess, a whole other line of inquiry there. <laughs> well, what it says is that they work under the shroud of secrecy and, 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 you know, everybody has everyone else's back. And, and yet here we are having patients being harmed in the meantime. So mm-hmm. yeah, thanks. Thankfully he did come forward. And that's kind of the point of my whole, what I'm doing is that, you know, let's get rid of that because it's not like anyone was being a bad person. No one went in there that morning, I'm sure, saying let's harm this woman. Sure, of course. But if we don't start to pay attention uh, to the processes and the procedures and the checklist that maybe they don't have in place, it is going to continue to happen. So they they need to at least acknowledge it and try to figure out what went went wrong so it doesn't happen again. Uh Uh-huh. At the point... Did you consider taking your mom to a dis- different hospital after that postponement? No, because the, the heart surgeon that we had that looked after her was top-notch and was an awesome man. He spent the night with her that first night, and I always tell people I hugged him more often than he's probably been hugged in his life. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was just a superhuman <laughs> being, and there were mm-hmm. so many others that were awesome that knew the case, and I guess they really had a... They had a dog in the race. They, they knew that if she died, they would really have a, a serious uh, wrongful death suit on their case. Mm-hmm. So they did a lot, I think, above and beyond the call of what they normally would do to mm-hmm. see to it that she did live. So, mm-hmm. no, I thought I was best to stay put. So you were, were you, she was hospitalized for four months, and were you in the hospital then visiting her like pretty much every day? I can just envision this. You were probably by her bedside yeah. constantly. Absolutely. Once I knew that next morning what happened to her, I thought, there's no way I'm leaving this woman alone. And so I did stay almost 24-7. And again, I didn't have any backup. My brother didn't really participate. And there was no one. My daughter was working, so she couldn't. So mm-hmm. really, it was just me. And, and that's why I said eventually my business disappeared, because when you're in sales, if you're not putting you know, leads in the front end, nothing's mm-hmm. coming out the back end. Mm-hmm. And so coupled with the fact that she then eventually had to move in with me, and then I had to head to Arizona with my niece, that business just uh, just fizzled. So uh, uh-huh. I had to reinvent myself as well. So is your mom living with you now, or is she on her own? She is on her own. She She's very much compromised, though. The, the arm has, the, the prosthesis has come apart. It's loosening. She's always in pain. There's no oh. movement of that arm. She's got congestive heart failure and COPD. She's on oxygen 24-7. So, yeah, it, it totally ruined her life. She can't do anything that she normally was able to do. But she does live on her own. I'm trying to allow her to have as much autonomy as she can and, and maintain, mm-hmm. you know, 
her own lifestyle. So we have someone that comes in a couple of days a week and takes her to the bank and the library and the grocery store and the beauty shop. And mm-hmm. things. Can and she walk on her own? She does walk on her own, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. That's great. A, a little shaky, but she <laughs> <Right>. does. <laughs> so that was, she's how old now, 86? She's 86, Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, bless her heart. Yes, I agree. It was it, it was quite a journey for her. So uh, And for you. And your yeah. family, your husband and your kids. I mean, everybody gets it, it's a ripple effect. Yeah, you're really smart to say that, Jenna. Uh, it it doesn't just affect the patient or the the uh, the main advocate. It really did change the whole family dynamic. Do you resent any of your family members? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I resent. It just kind of puts personalities in place that you kind of suspected for a long period of time. And then mm-hmm. once something really, a crisis happens and things start to fall apart, you know, it just mm-hmm. puts everything and everybody in their, in their proper perspective. Mm-hmm. It is what it is, and it's not going to change. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I'm happy for the role I played. I, I will never look back and say, gee, I wish I had done more. So yeah. as long as I'm happy with myself, I guess that's all I can concern myself with. Uh-huh. And your mom lives close by to you now, right? Yes. She lives, you know, about less than a minute drive. Uh-huh. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it is. It, close, it works out well. Close enough, but just far enough to have. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And that's another point. We, we know we all do need our space. Sure. And those, those few months that I did have her living here, which was great because I could look after her. But again, that, that does change your routine and you just feel like somebody's here all the time and it does change your relationship with your spouse and and your children i'm sure Mm -hmm. so you do need to make and think about yourself at some point in time in order to be a good caregiver Mm -hmm. well you do a lot of speaking and you offer training workshops for both for patients uh, advocates employers and healthcare providers can you talk a little bit about what sort of topics you address for each group sure for the patient side I usually do a one-hour presentation, and it retells my mom's story. I usually start with that because it sets the stage for people to really understand where I'm coming from and what we're talking about. But then I like to talk about some of the hazards that one will encounter during a hospital stay and then what you can actually do about them. I mean, there's things like a wrong-site surgery. There's not much you can do when you're under anesthesia and you're at their at their mercy. But things like hospital or healthcare acquired infections there's a lot you can do to to avoid those things like medication errors and medication side effects there's plenty that we as the patient or the advocate can do about those so i try to empower our our listeners to say here's some of the hazards and here's some very practical things you can do to avoid them and um, mm-hmm. then on the provider side because Hospitals are partially paid through Medicare based on patient satisfaction survey score results. So when you get a survey after a hospital stay, don't throw it out. Fill it out. It goes to wherever, and they compute to see what the, what the rankings are. And then the hospitals paid or not paid based on those cumulative scores. So now hospitals are very, very interested in the patient experience, in improving the patient experience. So they have been... Uh, they reach out to me with open arms to say, what can we do from the patient perspective to improve our patient survey results? And so hmm. people initially thought, well, hospitals aren't going to want to have anything to do with you, but it's really quite the contrary. Um, they do because they want to know what affects the patients and what they can do better to improve their scores, basically to improve bottom line. Mm-hmm. And have ha- is that 
a new phenomenon. Was it like that when your mom was hospitalized? No. I think it all started 2012, 11 uh-huh. or 12. It started to phase in little by little. It was like 1%, 2%, 3%. And uh-huh. then also where they're, where they're uh, giving incentives and disincentives if people leave the hospital, uh, discharge from the hospital, then come back within 30 days, the hospital is then uh, docked for that if they're getting too many people coming back. So that's relatively new. It didn't. It wasn't the case when my mom was in the hospital in, in 2008. Hmm. And you know, I feel like we're a survey nation. There's not a moment when you you're not you're not solicited for your views on something. You can't even open a web browser without taking a survey. Sometimes, you know. <laughs> But you make a really good point about the need for patients to hold on to those surveys and respond to them. And one is possibly inclined not to do that because you just want to get out of there and you want to get out of the hospital. You want to go home. You're so wiped out. You don't want to sign any more papers, but you're right. It really is important to hold on to that piece of paper, even if you don't fill it out right then and there, to fill it out later on um, because that is, that, that's uh, going to affect other patients down the line. And um, it's a really important document. What they need is a point of touch. I mean, uh, uh, right, right when it's happening, they need like a little kiosk in the room so when something goes wrong, you can report it right then because you wait three months to get a survey in the mail, and by then you're like, I don't want to think about this anymore. Right. Or the memory fades. I mean, if they really want feedback, it needs to be instantaneous. Like when it's happening right now, let me report this, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just the bad, but the good, too. Mm-hmm. When you when you do these talks for patients and advocates, how how do they respond to your talks? I mean, are people aware? Are they are they surprised by what they don't know? And how do they respond? Yeah, they they do. They are quite uh, when they do respond. They say they never heard of that before, never thought of that before. When I say, hey, would you ever consider asking your physician to wash his or her hands before touching you? Some of the older demographic, the older groups will say, oh, I would never, oh, I would never say that. And some of your younger would say, no problem, I have no problem saying <laughs> right. that. Right. Yeah, no, a lot of people are, are very interested in this topic, especially if they've ever had a hospital encounter. Uh-huh. And it goes beyond hospital. It's your healthcare encounter. Just a doctor's appointment as well. A lot of what we talk about applies. You know, they walk into the room and shake your hands. Well, where has it, where's their hand been? They just touched the doorknob mm-hmm. that a thousand other people have touched. Mm-hmm. And they're most likely sick. You know, you're in a doctor's office or a hospital. So it's not wrong. It's not weird or rude to say, you know, would you please wash your hands before touching me? Mm-hmm. Those kind of simple things, those, those basic breaches in protocol that uh, cause problems. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned was really um, interesting about, I think when my mom was in the hospital, she had to have a catheter put in, and she got an infection from that. Apparently, that's quite common. It is quite common. Um, you know, anytime you have any kind of an opening in the body, right. obviously, that's the, that's the pathway to infection. But especially urinary tract infections, those are one of the biggest and the most mm-hmm. prevalent sources of healthcare-acquired infections. So if someone does have a urinary catheter, the question needs to be on a daily basis, when can I have this removed? Uh You know, it should not be for the convenience of the staff to say, okay, now that's one less room that we don't have to worry about, you know, the call bell ringing for the bedpan. Right. I I don't think it's such a problem in a hospital, but when you get into a uh, rehabilitation facility or a nursing home, 
I think a lot of times it's left there for the convenience of the staff and not necessarily for the benefit of the patient. So mm-hmm. number one question, can I get rid of this today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why a veteran's uh, illness drives, uh, you write on your website about how a veteran's illness drives different needs for their caregivers. How, how, talk a little bit about that, if you would. I found that to be interesting and, and really not surprising, but not something that I gave any thought to, in that a veteran has been through so many more, I don't even know how to say it, but I guess more traumatic type of, of experiences than a normal hospital patient or just as a civilian. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody looking after a caregiver, there's a lot of other issues that you wouldn't find as, as you and me looking after our, our mom or dad or, or family member. So I did put a specific chapter in there for caregivers, and I think they really need to look more for outside resources to help them and understand and post-traumatic stress disorder and all of those types of things, or even even the agents, the, the um, chemical agents that our veterans have been exposed to will create health problems that you and I would never experience. So it's a whole other world for these mm-hmm. folks, not just the veteran, but their care team, their caretaker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you, you have a special place in your heart for the veterans. Can you talk about the Support Project? That's your charity. Yeah, that is the charity. It's called the Support Project. And support. Spell, yeah, Support, S-E-W as in so. Oh, sure. That's Do you know okay. I just now got that? <laughs> the Support you know Project. <laughs> You're not alone. Spell it out. Spell it out for us. It started with my mom. Once she got out of the hospital, she could not do much, but she was still able to move her arm. And she, I guess if there was one word to explain how she felt, it would be gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so feeling that gratitude, she wanted to give back and and share it with others, the fact that she was still alive. And so she started making pillowcases just for something to do. And... They were really pretty ones with three layers with the, the main body of the pillowcase and then a thin strip, which was a different fabric, and then the cuff was a different fabric. And I had never sewn before, but always wanted to. So I bought myself a sewing machine and was helping her make pillowcases. And I said, what are we going to do with these, Mom? She said, well, why don't we make some for the veterans? And so we found some homeless veteran shelters, and we started making pillowcases, sent them to homeless veteran shelters, and also to troops. Then they were in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we found through Soldiers Angels, we were sending pillowcases to them, and they would forward them on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how that started. It's kind of grown to women's and children's uh, domestic abuse shelters. We make special ones for animals, for uh, dogs and cats at animal rescue shelters. And now mm-hmm. my mom can't sew anymore, and mm-hmm. I don't have much time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when I am at speaking events, I will bring this up and a lot of the assisted living places have uh, sewing groups that say, we'd love to take part. So all of, uh, all of our proceeds, our book proceeds and our, our network proceeds, my speaking fees go toward buying fabric. We furnish them to these uh, gals and guys that sew for us. And uh, yeah, again, it's one of these things that grew organically and has become what it is little by little, and it wasn't a plan. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's the supportproject.com. Mm-hmm. Support Project. That's S-E-W-P-O-R-T for our listeners. Well, what do you do now for your own personal survival these days? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, let's see. Besides working, which actually I really like to do, I love the radio shows, and I, I started the Speak Up Talk radio network. I love doing that as well. But for a little peace of mind, I we live on a river, and I have a dock right out back, and I've got a pink kayak. So most days I take the kayak out and go up and down the river, and it's a very zenful, peaceful time. And I also do Tai Chi. That really helps me unwind and refocus and kind of think about nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually find some of my best thoughts come when I'm in the kayak or mm-hmm. after, after Tai Chi. Once you let go of everything and, and just kind of focus on nothing, that's when I find my inspiration. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we didn't cover? Well, I guess my one thing I would like for folks to know is that we're all going to be faced with a hospital stay, whether it's for ourselves or caring for a family member. So it really behooves us to think about it ahead of time. And that is why I wrote the book, so people can understand what the hazards are, how and why they happen. And if you understand why something happens or how it happens, then you know what you can do to avoid it from happening to you. Mm-hmm. So all I would say would be is to be prepared, think ahead of time, have advanced directives in place, get all of your legal and financial and powers of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, all of that in place. So when this does occur, you're not wondering, what do I do? You're, you're, you're equipped and enabled and prepared to do something and to take care of that person or yourself. Mm-hmm. And can you tell our listeners where we can find your book? Yes, it's at our website, speakupandstayalive.com, and it's all spelled out, speakupandstayalive.com. And we've got the book, it's $20, and again, the proceeds go to buy pillowcases, We've got patient safety logs that you could bring to the hospital with you. And I always say to folks, you don't even have to read the book. Take it to the hospital with you. Lay it on the tray table. Just from the cover alone, it starts a conversation. So when people come into your room, they'll, they'll say, what is that? And that opens your door to have that conversation. I'm concerned about infections. I'm concerned about bed sores. I'm concerned about malnutrition. And now just from that brief conversation, people know that you're a little bit different than the knee surgery next door, the heart attack down the hall. And they will treat you differently. Oh, yeah. realize that you're a little bit more empowered, Mm -hmm. a little bit more educated. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got their ear and their eye, and that's what you want. Mm -hmm. Well, Pat, you're terrific. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pat Rulo, she's the author of Speak Up and Stay Alive, a patient advocate hospital survival guide, and she's the producer and host of the Speak Up and Stay Alive national radio show. Thanks so much for being on the show, Pat. I really appreciate having you. Jenna, it's an honor to be in your presence and to be on your show. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Happy holidays. You too. (laughs) Okay, bye-bye. Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at AgeWise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at AgeWise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free on iTunes. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise.